Your source for community, Muskoka-made talk shows are on Muskoka Magazine, The Bay 88.7. Hey, this is Dr. Shervin. Muskoka Magazine is brought to you by Dairy Lane Dental, keeping Muskoka smiling for over 30 years. Please visit DairyLaneDental.com. This is Touching the Past with your host, Trisha Markle. Hello, my name is Trisha Markle and welcome to Touching the Past, a program where we explore the heritage of Huntsville and area it's past and not too distant past. And for anyone who has anything to do with Algonquin Park, they'll recognize the name of my guest today, Craig McDonald. Craig worked for 24 years in Algonquin Park. He has decades of experience canoeing, hiking, snowshoeing, and skiing throughout Ontario. And to quote from the Friends of Algonquin Park website, has made countless contributions locally, provincially, and internationally. Craig has numerous achievements, including his contribution to the master plan for the park, surveying shorelines and routes, and for those who use many of the backwoods trails, you can thank Craig for your maps. It would take the whole program to list all Craig's accomplishments. I'll just finish this introduction with the fact that Craig is the recipient of the 2022 Friends of Algonquin Directors Award. Welcome to Touching the Past, Craig. Of all the contributions you've made to the park, which is the one that you're most proud of? I think it would have to be uh, my research into the historical winter travel routes in Algonquin Park. And these are the original? These are the original routes. And I can explain what they're all about. It's It was very poorly documented. Uh, it has been... Uh, a long research period that I've worked over this. I've, I've actually worked at it uh, since the uh, 1970s, and uh, I am still working on it today. Uh, what what you have to know about Algonquin Park, uh, everybody thinks of Algonquin Park as canoe routes, a place where you can take a canoe and travel from lake to lake or down rivers uh, and go on a significant journey. But you have to realize that in the old days, uh, Native people lived in Algonquin Park. This was their hunting grounds. And uh, because they lived here all year round, uh, they had to seriously consider how they were going to move about in the wintertime. And, uh, of course, to survive, they had to move around to do their hunting. And uh, their travel and communication uh, was by waterways. Of course, in the old days, there were no railways, no aircraft, no roads. So everything had to be done by water. The problem uh, with uh, traveling uh, on water in the wintertime, uh, of course, the lakes are frozen, but often you'll have circumstances where uh, the ice is not very strong. And... Uh, you can imagine that uh, where rivers are flowing swiftly, there's probably very little ice or maybe no ice at all. So what you would have to do on these rivers is uh, use extensions to the summer portages. So if you're, you can imagine coming up to, uh, uh, say, a waterfall or a, or a, a rapids, uh, you would have in the summertime a portage that would carry you, a, a land trail that would carry you around 
this obstacle, and then you would just put back into the river and paddle further downstream. Well, in the wintertime, often the uh, area of open water is is uh, larger than the portage trail. So what you have are extensions to the portage that carry you further down on the land uh, until you can reach a place where there's safe ice. And we call these extensions, uh, the traditional name for them is Bon Cana. And it, it originates from the, uh, the Ojibwe Algonquin languages uh, and from the word Biboon, which is winter. So these are uh, winter. And then the last part of the word is Kana, which comes from Mikana, which is a trail. So they've shortened it all down to Bon Cana. Now, these trails also are useful uh, for uh, other areas. And an example of that is uh, sometimes there's narrows and lakes. And especially if these uh, lakes are on um, uh, a waterway system where there's a lot of uh, flow of water through the lake, you'll get uh, narrows in the lakes. And uh, this, of course, is an area of... of, um, can be open water or very thin ice. So in these cases, there was also uh, these Bonkana land trails that uh, would go over the land at the narrows to circumvent this dangerous ice. And uh, they are Bonkana, so you use the same word. But um, how this occurs is uh, it's not just the flowing water. Often... Uh, they can have a, you can have a situation where even a small flow can be a problem. And this is because the uh, terrain underneath the narrows may come up at an angle. Uh, and uh, what that does is even with a small flow, it will bring water up from deep down in the lake. And of course, in the wintertime, the warmest water is at the bottom of the lake. So its maximum density is at plus four. So that heavy water, heavy warm water goes to the bottom. So when you have a narrows, uh, if the shape of the bottom is such that it draws the water up to the surface, you can have this warm water come right to the surface of of the, uh, the lake. And of course, the ice won't freeze properly there because the water can be as warm as plus four. Now, I, I knew, I've heard like the, in summer they say the lake turns over yes. and you get that cold water coming up from yes. the bottom, but yes. I never realized that that also happened in winter. Yes, so it, it, there's no, in the wintertime it's stable, there's no overturn, but um, that warm water exists uh, down below. And of course, fish like the lake trout, in the wintertime, they will go down low because they like the warmer water. They don't like it too warm, but uh, plus four is, a, is a, great, uh, a great temperature for them to live at. So anyways, we have, this, um, we have these narrows to worry about. We also have the same uh, phenomenon at the outlet of lakes. So often at the outlet of a lake, if you're going down a river, you'll have a trail that will... Uh, go from the outlet of the river, maybe it goes into a rapids and, and then down 
further it goes into smoother water, which can be canoed. In situations like that, it's very similar to the narrows. So the, the uh, bottom slopes up to the surface, uh, the bottom of the lake slopes up to the surface, and you get that warm water coming up to the surface, and then it's carried a long way downstream, much more than, than it would if you had a rapids in the middle of a river. So, uh, for example, if you had a, you had a, a river, uh, say like the Petawawa, where you have a section that's a, a long river, uh, a long portion of river, and you have a rapids there, usually the uh, portion that's open uh, is not too far downstream before you get onto good ice again. But in the case of a lake outlet, which they call Agujijing, it's much larger so and much longer, so you have to have a longer trail. Now, another thing that happens in the wintertime is uh, people, when they travel, of course, in the wintertime, they're on snowshoes. And snowshoeing is difficult enough without having a lot of weight on your back. So if you say uh, in the summertime, you're, uh, you're accustomed to carrying 60, 70 pounds, maybe 100 pounds on your back, maybe more if you're strong. But this is not a good idea in the wintertime because that extra weight puts more weight on your snowshoes and you sink deeper and it's a lot of work and it's, it's hard work. So what over thousands of years of use, the native people came to the conclusion that the most practical way to carry anything more than about 15 pounds in the wintertime while snowshoeing was on a sled or a toboggan. And those, of course, in Algonquin Park, the type of equipment that's used are these long, thin toboggans that are called nabagadaban, or they also used another form, which was a sleigh, and uh, which had legs, so it was called okadadaban, or odabanis, uh, as the people over in Golden Lake call them. And... The problem with these is it's wonderful. Uh, they pull very nicely on the waterways, but um, my goodness, uh, when you get to land trails, you have to deal with side hill. So uh, this is a challenge because the when you're going on side hill on a portage, the t- sleighs and toboggans have a tendency to roll over. So I'll tell you a little bit about this in a minute. Well, that's great, Craig. I'm just fascinated. We're going to have to take a break for a few minutes, but we will be right back. And I can't wait to hear the end of this story. By Muskoka for Muskoka, your collection of Muskoka-based talk shows. Muskoka Magazine, The Bay, 88.7. I'm Dr. Shervin from Dairy Lane Dental, and you're listening to Muskoka Magazine. This is Touching the Past with your host, Trisha Markle. Welcome back to Touching the Past with my guest, Craig McDonald who was just talking about winters and adventures in Algonquin Park, and we're just waiting to see if the sleigh is going to roll down the hill and how it's prevented. So take it away, Craig. To prevent this uh, phenomenon, uh, you can do a couple of things. If if it's not too bad, usually you take a, a snow shovel, or what the Native people used to in Algonquin Park would call magahigan, 
and they could uh, level the trail with a with a shovel before they brought the uh, the sleds through and freeze in a trail, especially if they're going to use it multiple times. But where the side hill is very significant, and we have many many portages in Algonquin Park where we have side hill, and most people carrying canoes wouldn't even notice it. But in the winter time, that's a different story. So what was often uh, the case is that beside the portage, there could be a swamp or a, a stretch of muskeg. So what they did is they made a trail that circumvented the side hill through the swamp. It's a place that you would never want to walk in the summertime, but in the wintertime, it's all frozen. So it provides a level surface to haul the toboggans or the sleighs. So what they would do is they would have a trail that would go through the muskeg paralleling the portage, and then once they passed the difficult spot of side hill, they could get back onto the trail. So that's another type of bonkana that was used. Now, on top of all of this, these muskegs and swamps were used in the wintertime to make shortcuts. So sometimes, and you would know this if you were a canoeist, that the canoe routes are often circuitous, where you have to go around following wherever the water goes, where the lakes, how the lakes lie. Well, in the wintertime, you can often use swamps, ponds, muskegs, all of this, uh, these types of areas that you would never want to travel in the summertime because you couldn't get through there, but uh, with a canoe easily. But in the wintertime, frozen, and these provide shortcuts to the summer travel route. So uh, this speeds up the process of travel from A to B. So we have a bunch of those as well. So my job over the last number of years has been researching all of this and and learning about uh, checking records and documents where I could find the information and then also field checking. So I've spent a lot of time in the bush, crossed Algonquin Park on snowshoes many times, east to west, north to south, all that sort of thing, researching these trails. Well, I was going to ask you where you came by all this knowledge and it sort of seems to be like it's it's life knowledge, just there wasn't really a study made no. of it, you know, not a, a university no. type study. This is your own love of Algonquin Park and the way of life and everything connected to it that has really given us all this information. And I see, now I understand what an ethnographer, ethnographer is. Did I say that right? Yes. And I looked it up and it's the study of different peoples and cultures. And I see that this comes after your name in most of the the little bits in uh, on the internet, and I I understand now where you get that designation. Yes. It's very important to understand that the the documentation of these trails. Yes, we do have some of them. Uh, you know, I could go back to, for example, uh, James Snow and and look at his maps in the eighteen fifties and see a few of the trails that were marked on for for the area, but. There's not very much detail. So one of my sources, especially back in the, the mid-70s, was to interview Native people whose 
families used to hunt and trap in Algonquin Park. That's so about the I best would interview, way. yeah, that was the, about the best way is to interview these elders and uh, let them tell the stories and locate these trails on the map. And also, I had the advantage of uh, being able to talk to older park rangers like Aubrey Dunn, who would have his dog teams go through some of these routes. So many of the old rangers, before the, uh, the use of the aircraft, would have to do these winter patrols, and they would be using a number of these uh, winter travel routes that really originated from the Native people. So I was able to interview them, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago and uh, get a lot of information uh, about about these uh, bonkana that exist in Algonquin well, Park. Please don't stop researching <laughs> because there's a wealth of information that we're going to, to lose if people like yourself don't get around to, to getting it and at least write it down for grandkids and afterwards. So this kind of, we've gone on to the winter phase. So maybe we can touch now on your love of snowshoes. I hear that you have quite a collection of snowshoes. Yes, I've, I've been interested in this since childhood. And uh, I have uh, everything from my mother's first pair of snowshoes when she was young uh, to uh, snowshoes that I've collected from Labrador right through to Alaska. So I've, I've traveled uh in with with snowshoes and i've i've done quite a bit of research on snowshoes and and uh also on toboggans and sleds and i've just uh in the past while well, i've come back from greenland and and done work on uh, comatix and uh i've i've worked in the in the high arctic and canadian arctic on on this and uh with the snowshoes i uh, with the the sleds i have not made a collection. I've, I've just sort of, I mean, it's extremely, how, how do you uh, stick a 20 yeah. foot comatic into a small plane or whatever? It's, it's a difficult thing, but uh, with the snowshoes, it's been different because I've been able to uh, make trips with vehicles and planes and, and uh, been able to collect. And then I've had friends also uh, donate snowshoes to me from various areas and, uh, it's been a fascination. I've I study the weaving and that's done in the snowshoes, and uh, some of them, of course, are very beautiful. They they all have woven patterns, mazenhaben, that are used to give the uh, snowshoe beauty. Uh, all sorts of tassels and fancy work that uh, most people have never seen before, but um, they were part of our Canadian cultural heritage. We say snowshoes, and I think everybody has this picture. This tennis racket style, but there are just numerous styles and each area has their own particular style and usage. Yes, that's that's very true. Uh, we have ones that are long and thin and upturned. We have some that are almost circular, totally round. We have some that have one crossbar, uh, which were called makwadu, uh, <laughs> bear paws. Uh, and we have uh, just many, and in fact, it's it's fair to say that um, many of the native people have uh, more than one style that they use, and they use them for different purposes and at different times under different snow snow conditions. So, 
what yeah, you, you have get to the, you get the spring snow that's yes, kind of rotten and yes, you need a different and, type. And of course, of I have those too because I have a sugar bush, and I operate a sugar bush, and uh, I'm running around on snowshoes uh, very late in the spring when things are melting, and uh, of course, at that time of year, uh, these Babby snowshoes have to be protected. You have to have leather guards that are put on the around the knots on the outside of the frames uh, to prevent it from being cut. Because what happens, of course, is babiche, uh, and a lot of people think it's some sort of guts that are string on a uh, strung on a, a snowshoe, but actual in actuality, babiche is the hide of an animal that's cut into strips, and then it's strung like string and woven into the, uh, over the snowshoe frame. So that's what it is. So as you can imagine, it's put on wet. When it dries, it goes tight like a drum. And then when you get into spring conditions, wet snow, of course, it gets wet, wet again, and it gets loose, and it starts to sag. So there's all sorts of nasty problems that you have to deal with in the spring. So in the spring... Uh, another problem, of course, is that the, the snow starts to, you know, earlier in the winter, it's often snow falls as flakes. But over time, it changes. And it changes, it, it starts to consolidate and becomes uh, pelletized. You've heard of corn snow in the, right. in the spring. Yep. And then when that gets wet, that's deadly on snowshoes because it can, when the snowshoes are wet, they're stronger than uh, spaghetti noodles, but but they, they are weak. <laughs> they can be uh, abraded, and and of course this is the guards. And then I'll tell you in a in a uh, I we're going to close take a break here, but I'm going to tell you how we prevent problems in the spring. Well, I'm going to have to make this into uh, Craig McDonald Part Two for another program. And um, for today, though, I would like to thank Craig for giving of his time. Obviously, you can hear he's a very busy man. And for him to take the time, I really do appreciate it. And I would like to ask you to join us again on Hunters Bay Radio 88.7 for our next program where we will explore more local heritage. <laughs> 